Hey guys. Hi. We're very excited. We have an awesome guest today. And uh, we are so excited to bring her to you. We're so excited for you to go out and read more about her after this podcast. Um, Marianne Williamson said, uh, Dr. Berman has written the how-to for being the parent we all wish to be. And the book is called Permission to Parent. Uh, Reese Witherspoon says, it's a must-read guide that encourages conscious, loving parenting with boundaries. Hallelujah. Uh, I have to agree with my good old buddy, Reese. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Robin Berman is a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry, UCLA. Her interest is focused on increasing healthy child development by strengthening the parent-child bond. She is on the clinical faculty at the UCLA Women's Life Center, which specializes in mental stability during pregnancy and postpartum. She is a founding board member of the Resnick Neuropsychiatric Hospital at UCLA and an advisory board member of Camilla and Matthew McConaughey's Just Keep Living Foundation. She's really busy, guys. Uh, She lives in L.A. with her husband and her three children. We're going to take a break, and we cannot wait to come back with our very special guest, Dr. Robin Berman. Hi, Dr. Berman. Hi there. Hi, this is Ellie. And this is Bianca. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Good. Well, I've got to say this. I think I know that uh, Reese Witherspoon said that it should be handed out in every hospital room. I think it should also be mandatory summer reading. You know, kids have summer reading that they have to do for school. (laughs) Every parent should be handed this book in first grade. Yeah. Thank you so much. My heart is in it, and my I've just felt so strongly that people needed a little bit of a lifeline. And it is, and I feel like I will go back to it for the next 15, 20 years. I mean, I, there are, I have a sister who's 17 right now, and this applies to her. It applies to me, yeah. and I'm in my early 30s. <laughs> I mean, I actually you know, am. I don't know so why I made a joke of that. But. Uh, when I give the, I've been going around the country giving the uh, parenting lectures, and when I give it to a preschool, they say it's the preschool age. When I give it to a high school, they say it's for high school. When it's just when I, Parents have been sending me notes who've read it who have college-age kids and say, this is the perfect book to read if you have college. I'm thinking... That's interesting. I guess parenting is just so universal across. And it's like a great movie. (laughs) Like, you know, when you see a great movie and you're always, you know, whatever, whatever point you're at in your life, you take things from it. Right. And then you go and see the movie 10 years later and something else hits you. And I feel like this book is like that. Absolutely great. Dr. Berman, when you were writing this, um, you know, obviously when you set out to uh, to do a passion project and something that you believe in, you you have great hopes for it. Um, Did you did you know in your bones at the time that it was going to have such a response and be so widespread into who it uh, pertained to or or were you surprised by by what it became? You know, I'm surprised. I'm surprised by the emotional reaction to it. Um, a lot of people will, you know, run up to me on the street and say, "Oh my! I bawled all the way. I took your book on an airplane. I just sobbed for hours. It reminded me of my own growing up and what happened to me." And I think permission to parent is kind of a double entendre because, in one sense, the book is obviously, you know, I, I'm going to get out my prescription pad and give you permission to parent your kids. But also, if you're really doing parenting right, you know, you get to reparent yourself. And so I think the emotional reaction 
has um, surprised me. I'm so glad Hollywood <laughs> has jumped on board. Like you mentioned, Reese Witherspoon said it should be Hannah in the Delivering Room. I, I recognize the, the Goop website of Gwyneth Paltrow. She put it on her website. I'm thinking there's something that's striking a nerve here, and I think it's just that we love our kids so much, and we want to do right by them. And I think this generation, this last 10 years, we've just gone overboard. Yeah. And I wanted to write about what is a balanced middle between the way we were raised, where children were seen and not heard and yelled at and shamed and all that. All that was wrong. But now we've created kind of a new wrong, which is making our kids the center of the universe, never saying no. You know, I, have, I cannot tell you how many consultations I do on parenting where parents will come in the couples and they'll say my kid is just ruling the roost and his toys are all over the house or her you know she's just taken over and she doesn't go to bed and she doesn't eat what she's supposed to eat and how old's your kid four (laughs) (laughs) wow really you know that much power at four And, and if i've heard it once i've heard it 17 times so i also wrote you know try wanted to inspire people to kind of grab the reins oh you inspired and, me this morning i looked at my daughter sabrina and i was like oh girlfriend you got to come in now because i feel so empowered after reading this book because you say um oh, and that was the mission was to you know to empower people to realize that it's not safe if your parent is in charge you know these kids are given too many choices and they're negotiating. No, I don't want to. I don't want to go to bed. Like, okay, you're four, you're five, you're not in charge. Or they're negotiating everything they're eating for dinner. Or they, they don't want this. And the mom's becoming a short order cook and jumping up and making four. It's like a little tyrant. And I think if you talk to the weakness, you end up with a fragile child. But you want to talk to the strength. Like, I, I so get that you don't want to go to bed. I so get you want to stay up till 10 o'clock, but bedtime's 7.30. So I always and think that... And when you, sorry, when you talk about the tyrant thing, like when we are tyrants ourselves, like it doesn't feel good. Like when I'm being really bitchy, like I'm not happy. So like we don't want, you know, just because they think they're getting their way, they're not happy getting their way either. Um, They are not happy getting their way. And it's not very safe. And what I've noticed as a psychiatrist is a massive increase in anxiety disorders in the last 15 years. I've never seen such a run of anxiety disorders in kids and young adults. You've got and two of them often, sitting right you know, here. <laughs> often when I'm talking to the kids, they say, you know, I, I could kind of manipulate my parents. You know, I could kind of get my way, and it didn't feel safe, and there was no one in charge. It's like how you get away with a substitute teacher, things you would never get away with with your teacher. You know, kids are really yearning for a benevolent dictatorship. I always say it's, it's not a democracy to be a parent. This isn't, okay, what's your, you know, you can hear your children's ideas and opinions, and that's wonderful. But ultimately, in terms of the rules and how your house functions, the more solid they are, the calmer kids get, the happier they get, the more they thrive, the, the better they're going to do in school, the more their teachers are going to like them, the more their friends are, you know, when they know how to share and take turns and be respectful and wait. And, you know, it just we've just become very overindulgent as parents, but it was super, super well-intentioned. We wanted to be different than our parents. And, I, and it was such a lovely instinct it just got lost in translation. I love you know, that. I love that you say, and because I want our listeners to hear when you said um, 
in the book, you write, remember, all feelings are welcome. All behaviors are not. Once guidelines are set, you have to enforce them consistently. Not following through with kids is like not finishing an antibiotic. One grows resistant bacteria, the other resistant kids. And and I loved when you said, oh, my God, all feelings are w- welcome. I was yeah. like, oh, that has been the missing piece. Like That's the missing piece is that – you know, now parents are overindulging feelings. Oh, you don't want to go to bed. You don't feel like it. Let's discuss it for two hours. But you can have all the feelings in the room. That's why I always say the balance is you hold that feeling. You hear that feeling, but you still hold the line. Mm-hmm. Where parents get tripped up is they hear the feeling and then they switch their parenting. Oh, okay, let's make bedtime later. Or, oh, you don't want to eat your vegetables. Okay, fine, you can have dessert. They lose the line, and I think... Everybody wants to be heard and, you know, and known. I always say the absolute highest form of romance is to be seen and known. And kids are no exception. They want you to say, oh, I get it. You know, you want to watch that PG-13 movie because all your friends are. I so get that. And you allow all those feelings. And then you say, but you're nine, so we can't watch it. <laughs> but in a few years, we're going to watch that. You know, you're going to grow, and one day you'll be able. That'll be an appropriate movie for you. But you know, it's that balance because that that feeling when you honor a kid's feelings, you diffuse their big emotions. So they're all upset, and if you just go straight to go to your room, no, you can't do it. But you know, you bark at them. Then they just get more hysterical, more upset versus like, oh, I so get it, honey. Let me give you a hug. You empathize. You know, think of your, your husbands, right? If you come home and you've had a bad day, you just want a poor baby, right? <laughs> you don't want, when you say you were late for a meeting, you don't want the husband to say, I told you you should have left sooner and blah, blah, and barking you all the things you should have done. You just want a really good hug and a loving empathic yeah. statement. and. What we know from neuroscience now is that actually grows a better brain. I think the thing I learned in writing this book that was kind of the most revelatory was that good parenting changes the structure of a developing brain, meaning that you actually grow new pathways when you tell your kids, I know, I get it. They, they grow more connective tissue. They you know, feel more heard. And when you hold the line, you know, and they feel safe, that also grows neural pathways. So we, we have, you know, a ton of reasons to, to hold the feeling and, and hold the line, and, and neuroscience really backs us up. So when we lose our courage as parents and we want to get really wishy-washy and limpy, you know, I always say, don't parent in the moment. Parent for the future, you know. Am I letting my kid whine and get away and negotiate? Are those skills I really want to foster in the future, you know? Or do I want to, or am I just throwing this, you know, dog a barking bone? You know, the people just get tired and lazy. Like your dog barks, you throw him a bone. Like I saw a woman yesterday in a store, and the kid is begging and begging for a toy, and the mom says, we're not here to buy you a toy, and the kid cries louder. And then she says no, and the kid throws a bigger fit, and she says, okay, pick a toy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so basically you say throw a bigger fit, whine louder and you get your way. Ultimately not a great long-term message. A great long-term message is the world doesn't revolve around you. We're here to buy a birthday present for your friend. It's okay for you to feel disappointed yeah. that you're not getting one today. Cuz you want to teach kids to walk through those feelings. You know what a great life skill that 
Our biggest job as parents is being an emotion coach to teach kids to walk through those feelings so that, you know, when they grow up, they get to be really emotionally evolved so that when somebody cuts them off on the 405, they're not screaming and flipping them the bird. They're they're able to regulate their feelings. And that skill, if you miss it in childhood, you can pick it up later, but it's much tougher. And much more expensive, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's so interesting because I have That's noticed <laughs> with even one of my, with my 16-month-old, uh, and she's almost 16 months, um, that even though she doesn't necessarily understand everything that I am saying, she understands the energy about it. And, you know, I've yeah. tried to start when she's um, getting really upset, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks about various things, um, just speaking to it. And I think what happens or what it feels like to me that happens is that when I speak to it, I align my energy with hers and she mm-hmm. feels that connection and it settles her. And I mean, the minute that I say, I understand you're upset and you don't like this, she locks eyes with me and it and she and she stills and I just think like oh, it's so crazy I can connect with her without the actual words being maybe ones that she completely understands how beautiful that's actually at the heart of great parenting that is at the heart because the connection you know we leave childhood nobody remembers the violin lessons or the this or that as much as they remember how they felt connected to their parents how yeah. did their mom make them feel understood safe heard connected and you're absolutely right. It's very pre-verbal to connect. Right. It's very, you don't even need full-on language, you know, a touch, looking at your daughter in the eye. I get it. Holding her. That kind of connection, that's what I'm talking about, grows a stronger brain and a stronger kind of love affair, you know, for parent to the child. That, that's, that's, that's the whole, that's the goal of parenting right there. That, that's, that's the essence of it, is to hold on to that connection. And people lose connection with their kids so easily because they bark orders at them and they get scared or they're scared to assert their authority and there's a lot of disrespect. There's constant breaking of a connection and we all make mistakes and we all lose it as parents and we all have deliveries we're not proud of. And the beauty of parenting is that you get to go back and, you know, as your child gets older, well, you know, now she's little for this. But if you make a mistake, you know, when she's four or five or six and say, oh, geez, can I have a mommy do-over? Mommy didn't mean to say it like that. My, yeah. my volume was a little high. If I could do it again, I would do X, Y, and Z. And then you show them, you know, that making mistakes is okay and that you're growing together and learning together and it's a whole we, you know, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect as parents. And, yeah. You know, repair is part of the part of the gig. But it sounds like you're off to the races. You're on a, you're on a, a great path if you're already connecting with that young of a baby. Well, on even days, on the odd days, I tend to screw up more. So. <laughs> and and we're so allowed to screw up. I mean, because this is the ultimate on the job training. I yeah. Mean, it is the ultimate on the job training, and. And as you go, you you know you get better, and you realize the con- that you know you have to be the lesson before you you can teach the lesson. So right. the classic one is parents are like stop screaming. <laughs> I told you to stop screaming, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Or I was at the park, and two little brothers were fighting, and the you know father said knock it off, knock it off, and then he hit both of them and said stop hitting. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, you tell this great Uh-oh. story. <laughs> You share this story about um, kids on a 
on some sort of athletic field and basically that the coach had the parents show up one day in their like sweatpants and they had the kids sit in the bleachers and the parents go out on the field and the kids got to yell at the parents the way that the parents yell at them. And then after that, oh, that's brilliant. the parents were a little quieter in the stands, a little more <laughs> encouraging and more relaxed. got the lesson quickly. I was a, a, a soccer t- um, coach and she said she got so tired of the berating of these young elementary school kids where they're screaming, get in the game, move your feet, what are you doing, that's the wrong play. And she said that the parents just can't, they think they're helping, which I think if they saw a film of themselves screaming and yelling and coaching from the sidelines, you know, I think they might see it differently. But when they're in the moment, they really think they're helping. And the coach obviously knew that the kids were losing their natural instincts. They were looking from the field of their parents to see what their parents were saying. And they were getting very discouraged. So the mom called the practice and said to the parents, you know, come in sweatpants and tennis shoes. And then she said to the kids, do exactly what your parents do. And so it was very cathartic for the kids because they started screaming, move your feet, what are you doing? That's a loud, you know, and all the kind of negativity and screaming and critique. And like you say, the parents got it very quickly. In, in AYSO soccer, they have a thing called Silent Day. And so if you've ever been, it starts at like four years old, AYSO, which I think is really, really early, you know, for athletics. But anyway... That's beside the point. But they, you know, most parents scream and yell even at four-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds who don't even remember which way the goal is. Mm-hmm. And they have one day where parents aren't allowed to speak at all. And kids are euphoric. I mean, <sighs> every coach I interviewed about the silent day, they're like, you've never seen such delighted, happy kids. And one of the little six-year-olds I interviewed, I said, why did you like it so much? And he said, because I could actually play the game and it was mine. <laughs> exactly, and you talk I was like about six how years old. yeah, oh I mean that goodness. dev is so sounds it's like the saddest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, <laughs> you talk about how we can't impose our dreams on our children, and I was wondering if you could touch on narcissistic parenting a little bit. And yeah, it's interesting. I just wrote an article for Goop called "The uh, Legacy of a Narcissistic Parent" because I think in the age of selfies and the me, 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 we really, we really are kind of vicariously living to our children and projecting a lot of what we want for them and we might not be seeing the soul of our own child. And the best example I have of that is um, a little boy I interviewed and the mom for the book who said that she really wanted her kid to be an athlete, even though the kid was, you know, very artistic and really not all that interested in athletics she was pushing pushing the basketball and put him on a travel team and got him privately coached and she was running him around to all these games and she said instead of being on her cell phone for one game she decided to just actually look at her child and he looked pretty miserable and so on the way home she said honey do you you like basketball and he said I, I really do, just just not the ball part. Not <laughs> 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 the part, you know, I like the uniform. Yeah, you know, like he literally, and she was wise enough to say, I won't be signing up next year. Like she was able to see, this isn't my kid. Yeah. Like so many of these parents are, you know, thinking, I, I don't know if you guys read um, Malcolm Glad, Gladwell's book, but he talked about 10,000 hours to build a champion, you know, if you want to have a violinist, it's 10,000 hours of practice. If you want to have a concert pianist or if you want to have a, you know. Well, that's why I'm an anxiety expert because I have over 10,000 hours of it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But that's what it does to kids. It just creates anxiety. And maybe, maybe you're one of those parents who will, the one in a thousand who will get an amazing basketball player who will go on to, you know, play for college, maybe. But aren't you sacrificing childhood? I always say, I think we've, we've stolen something we didn't intend to steal, which is our kids' childhood. Yeah. You know, we want to give them the freedom and we want to really say, oh, you don't want to play basketball? Okay, let's, let's quit. And anytime I do a parenting consultation, you know, a lot of the fathers say, quit. What do you mean? I've already paid for all this coaching and, and this teens and he can't quit. And, you know, and then I say, why? Because I never got to, and it always yeah. goes back to their own narcissism, you know? So I always, in order to check our narcissism as parents, which we all have, by the way, we all have it, is to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to me, my kids quitting ballet? You know, what does it mean to me, my kids not going to that preschool? That's, that's the question at the heart of it is when you can separate your needs from your kids and be like that mom would say, oh, you really don't like basketball. Let's quit. And let's find something that really lights you up. Then you're really parenting, you know, your, your child out of a spirit place versus out of your anxiety or ego what's your what's your advice to parents because you know a lot of times I think it's hard for parents to know like is my kid just having an off day and they don't want to go to practice today and they don't want to do this today how how would you how would you advise a parent who says like I can't tell if it's that they don't like it or they're they they just are like lazy right now and don't want to you know show up and do the work for what this is Right. I think it comes to, you know, did they did it start with you, with you imposing an agenda like they're going to be a basketball player, or they're going to be a tennis player, or did it start with a genuine interest? You know, the kids started watching baseball games and said, I really want to play baseball. And, then, you know, and is the schedule too rigorous? Because sometimes we burn kids out yeah. because, you know, we're, we're calling them lazy. But when they're, you know, seven and they're having five days a week of basketball, you know, baseball practice, it's too much. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is these parents, you know, gung-ho pushing them in elementary school, by the time they're in junior high, a lot of them, I interviewed a lot of orthopedic surgeons, they're like they're too injured to play because they yeah. have overuse injuries because they're training kids like they train adults and kids' bodies are not adult bodies and sometimes they just get plain old burned out. So sometimes it's so hard to step away as a parent. but. What do you, you know, say to the parents who would be like, well, I don't want, let's say a parent says, I don't want my kid to know that quitting is okay. Because I feel like I've heard that before from yeah. parents. Right. And I think, I think it's a fair thing when you, when you join a team to follow it through. So halfway through the season, they say, you know, I don't feel like doing it. Well, the, I think the greater lesson is you made a commitment. We're going to honor this commitment. We're going to see it through. And next year, if you don't feel like signing up for soccer, we won't sign up, but your team is here and they're depending on you. And I think that's a great life lesson. But I think saying, you know, you're, you're playing soccer for the next five years, whether you like it or not, is, is a lot of what I see. And I particularly see a lot of it in West Los Angeles. Oh, a lot of vicarious fathers trying to live out their dreams of, you know, whatever their athletic, you know, yeah. dream was in high school. They want it for their child. And I've seen fathers rig drafts. I've seen maybe 15 fathers get kicked out by referees for, you know, not being good sports, for yelling at refs. I've seen a fist fight at Barrington Park in Brentwood. I mean, I I cannot begin (laughs) to tell you what I've seen with my own eyes. And then I think, 
you know, what is the kid, you know, parents think they're being so involved, but on a shrink's couch one day, what are they going to remember? You know, yeah. their dad getting into a fist fight or, you know, that they lost a eight-year-old game by one point. I mean, we really have lost a little bit of, of perspective here. So I think Malcolm's 10,000 hours might have messed us up a little because maybe you will end up with an amazing baseball player, but you're not going to necessarily end up with a balanced child. And from, and from a neurologic standpoint in terms of how a brain grows, you know, that the brain benefits from a buffet. You know, sample a little of this, sample a little, a little of that. You're growing new pathways as you're sampling. So parents who just drill, drill, drill one thing from the beginning, you know, don't think of it from a neuro- neurologic perspective, but you get more of a lopsided brain. Yeah. And, you you know, said- and, and for your baby, who, who has the 18-month-old? Bianca does. Bianca, okay, so in, in terms of your baby, in the first three years of life, your baby's brain is tripling in size. It's oh, my God, biggest, that's put so much pressure on us. <laughs> it's the biggest brain growth, you know, Mine's almost ever. two. And, and I've got one year left little, to make her a genius. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, much more important is the emotional part that they, exactly what you said about the connection, because they borrow your nervous system. So if you drop something and go, oh, my gosh, I dropped milk or whatever, then they're, you know, they're going to tend to react that way because they're literally borrowing your nervous system. So I think a much bigger thing in these early years and elementary years isn't, you know, how much baseball they play, but are you being a good emotion coach? Are you teaching them, you know, to, to regulate their feelings? Because that kind of goes with you for life. I don't think most, you know, 50-year-old men are playing baseball or 40-year-old men, but managing their feelings <laughs> is kind of an attractive quality to yeah. teach if you have a son or a daughter. You know, that that goes the distance. That well, really... Yeah, and you talk about empathic failure a lot. Um, can you discuss some stuff about that, like about what happens to children when they don't have a parent that they're able to mirror or because, you know, the parent's so wigged out spilling milk that the kid's a nervous wreck. I mean, how does that, you know, affect the child throughout life? And and like an empathic failure, there's so many of them. And sometimes when we miss what our kids are feeling, that's a great opportunity to circle back and say, gosh, I don't think I get what you were really trying to tell me. So you can circle back. But like a classic example was ice. There's a kid in my son's elementary school who constantly um, was crying. So he was crying in kindergarten, and the parents would say, get up, get up, you're fine, get up, you're fine. And then in second grade, he was still crying. And they'd, get up, you're fine, you're fine. And then in sixth grade, he was still crying. And in seventh grade, he was still the first to cry when he got injured. And my older son said, you know, gosh, I think if the parents had just said, are you okay, sweetie, and given him a hug in kindergarten, maybe those feelings would have, you know, he would work through those. So that's an empathic failure. If your kid is really scared or shaken and upset and you say, get up, you're fine. And I know people want to create tough kids, but when they're really little, sometimes they need that locked gaze. Oh, that must have hurt. Mommy's done that too. I know how that knee feels when you scrape it. Instead of the narcissistic, how could you do this to me? Yeah, that, when you start, that's the, that, is the key statement that, that the, how can you do this to me? You know, I saw a kid, you know, literally like a, you know, two-year-old in a grocery cart and was just kind of being antsy and, and was, you know, spilled something, was drinking and spilled something. Mom had, and she said, I'm going to be late now. How could you do this to me? How? You've ruined my whole day. And I was thinking, oh, poor little, poor little kid. 
you know, he, little baby doesn't have the coordination to be holding that little sippy cup or whatever, slipped out. There was nothing personal. You know, we take sometimes personal things that are just developmental, you know, and the how can you do this to me, that's actually a key thing is getting ourselves out of the way. You know, good parents, we check our ego at the door. Get yeah. yourself out of the way. Um, a story I tell in my book was a um, mom whose kid was doing a tug of war. I don't know if you read that story. And uh, there was a little tug of war at a preschool, and the moms were pulling against the kids. And then, you know, they made them look like they were going to win. And then they let the kids win, obviously. And the kids were jumping up and down and cheering, all except this one little boy. And the mom was getting very embarrassed that her kid was crying and screaming. And so she went over to the boy and she said, knock it off, you're embarrassing me. What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? You know, a lot of narcissistic injury, as we say in my business. And then she caught herself, which was so magnificent. And she realized her kid was really upset. And she kind of gentled her tone and kneeled down next to him. And she said, what's, what's the matter? Tell me what's going on. And he said, we really didn't win, did we, Mom? <laughs> And uh, she said, how do you mean? She said, well, you guys are so big and we're so little. It's impossible that we won, Mom. And she said, yeah, you're right, honey. You, you really didn't win. I, and he said, do those other little kids believe that, that they actually beat the mom? <laughs> and the mom said, they, they really do. And he said, then I feel so alone. Oh, my God. Oh, oh, God. What and, a truth and teller. So of course, I was watching this whole dynamic. And as a psychiatrist, I said, wow, you really, that was so beautiful. You, you did such a 180 on your parenting. And she said, you know, I went from feeling humiliated and embarrassed that my kid was crying to feeling like, wow, what a sensitive little gentle kid I have and yeah. kind of smart that he realized, you know, <laughs> we, we, we couldn't have won the tug of war. My, my other favorite story about, you know, putting your emotions aside to be in service to your kid, you know, getting your own ego out of the way happened at that same preschool. There was a lovely stay-at-home dad. A spoiler alert for my book, Permission to Parent, but here it comes. This little guy, my favorite story, I think, in the whole book, this guy, I'm sitting next to this guy on a preschool bench, and his little daughter, Allie, comes running up, and, oh, Ava won't play with me, and she's crying, and she's got these big brown eyes and brown hair, and she's adorable, and she's got this staccato cry that's just killing you. If you're a mother, you just feel yourself want to you know, embrace her. So the father was lovely. He hugged her and he wiped away her tears and he said, oh my goodness. And then he did something that floored me. He threw the resiliency ball back in her court while she's this four-year-old girl sobbing that this girl won't play with her. He said, oh sweetie, so how are you going to solve the problem, honey? They said, There's a new study that just came out saying the most important thing you can do to raise your kids happiness is ask them how are you going to solve the problem so in the middle of her crying he says so what are your ideas of how you're going to solve the problem and she said well I can play with a girl I know with big brown eyes and brown hair and he said oh you mean you honey and she said yeah and she said that's a great idea and off she skips and I looked at him and I said I don't know if you know but I am a parenting group leader I'm a psychiatrist that is the best parenting I think I've ever observed. And he looked at me and he said, that little Ava's a bitch. <laughs> 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 and I literally almost fell off the park bench. 
And I said, oh, my goodness. He said, just because I don't, you know, I don't respond with my needs and my feelings doesn't mean I don't have my own. I'm busy taking care of my daughter's feelings. So that doesn't mean, you know, I wasn't thinking that little girl's a bitch and her parents are <laughs> terrible. I was like, okay, slow down. <laughs> and I love that so much because I feel like a lot of moms, like, talk shit about the other kids that are, I mean, luckily we're still in the early stages. Like I have an almost two year old and so I'm not there yet, but I just the drama that I foresee in our future, like with high school and stuff and the yeah. idea of like, hold my tongue, like don't, you know, yeah. have, keep my opinions to myself because she's probably gonna make up with those friends and play with them some more. Yeah. Beautiful conscious parenting. I think that's the key to parenting is being mindful and thoughtful like that. And realizing that allowing kids to work through it on their own creates resiliency, you know, creates stronger kids. And, yeah, they might be, you know, hating that friend, you know, one week of school and the next week of school they're going to sleep over at their house. So when we add our drama to their drama, it just we, we just have to take the higher ground and yeah. stay out of it. I always say when in doubt in general in parenting, stay out. <laughs> Dr. Berman, yeah. you, you talk about um, in the book, you talk about uh, seeing moms in the sandbox take shovel back when one was grabbed out of one of their kids' hands and, and you say obliterating all opportunities for the children to learn how to work it out on their own. My question for you, though, and we talked about this on a previous podcast, is what about when um, – there are kids, and and I don't really know how to describe it, other than to say there are children that seem intent upon inflicting um, physical harm onto other kids. And what, how, how do you navigate those situations? And to give you a specific example, I was at a, a play area with my daughter, and there was a girl that was probably three or four. And she came over to my daughter and her fists were clenched and she kind of – I could tell her jaw was clenched and she was trying to grab onto Magnolia and and almost twist her, her skin. And she was – there was kind of this look of, of fascination of how far can I go to, oh, to hurt. And I don't – I don't know how to deal with that. And, and well, Ellie, that's, and that's it. What did you do? What did you do in that situation? Because that's I, I, an intervention by mom. Yes, I absolutely removed my daughter. But I didn't know. I didn't I didn't say anything. And I, Ellie and I had to talk about it because I said, you know, what frustrated me the most is that eventually the parent came over and she said, oh, yeah, we've had some problems. But she was nowhere in the vicinity of the, of the girl. And I thought, if you know your child has that problem, then you should be there to probably, oversee them. Probably why that child has that problem because she's got an absentee mom you know, who's often not paying attention right so you is know? the is the best scenario in that case to just get your child out of there is there anything i mean i, I don't know I if think i should in that situation where you've got an older kid and sweet little magnolia who's younger and she's she's you know inflicting harm your job is to protect your kid period and right story. you totally did the right thing okay. i'm talking about you know kids are wanting a toy and you know that's my toy and that's your toy and then the parent gets in quickly and negotiates it if they can't work it out you know, you can go in and moderate it. But right. if we give our kids an opportunity, sometimes they really can, you know, work it out themselves. Right. They can really, but at that age, they're very young. And when you're talking about harm, you, you did absolutely the right thing. Jump in and protect your child. And and that's that's not okay. And like you said, it's, as a parent, you know, there are two kinds of parents. Parents who don't want to know what their kid is doing and parents who do. <laughs> right. You know? And I think the parents who really grow into their role as you know parents over the years say gosh if my kid is acting up at your house i want to hear about it or oh i really want to hear if you know my kid 
told the lie or did this, that, or the other thing. And this mom, like you say, if she knows this is kind of a pattern here, should be really staying close. Right. I, I think you did the 100% right thing to do is protect your child, period. Would you mind sharing your story about the swing set and the little boy who wanted the middle swing set? <laughs> Such a classic story these days. I've, I, since I've written that book, I think I've seen that story 15 or 20 times. It really times sticks with over. you. Oh, so a mom on a, you know, there's a middle swing and an end swing, and this little boy is screaming that, that, you know, he's on the end swing, but he wants the middle swing. And so, you know, getting louder and louder, and, you know, the boys are kind of looking at each other, and, and the little boy in the middle swing is kind of like, what am I supposed to do? I'm, you know, a little kid. And the kid is screaming louder and louder, and the mother goes up and I'm like, oh, finally, she's going to jump in and say, sweetie, there's already someone on the middle swing. You're going to have to wait your turn. I'm sure when he's done swinging, you know, you can have a turn. And not only did she not do that, she went up and yelled at the mother, you can see that my kid wants the middle swing. Get off. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, These are great life lessons, right? These are really great life lessons. You know, I know talk about teaching narcissism and entitlement, right? that you get what you want when you want it. You don't have to learn patience. You don't yeah. have to learn respect for other kids. It's just, you know, and the, and the, the mom, you know, whose kids lost it, they kind of got in a little sandbox themselves, and the mom said, your kid's a monster, and your kid's going to be a monster <laughs> oh if you keep parenting like this. And, of course, the mom, you know, was on to something, which is you cannot cater to your children. I was at that little my gym, you know, those my gym oh, yeah. little gymnasiums for kids. And I remember. saw the same thing with that little airplane where the kid wanted the red one and not the blue one and started screaming and crying that they didn't get the color he wanted. And the mom basically looked very miffed at the other mom and was like, hello, you know, you can see my kid wants this color and your kid's, a, you know, it's, that's too much intervening, too much helicoptering. Way too much. When we're you at know, my... Way too much. It creates so much anxiety. I mean, I, I saw a kid at one of those, you know, the mom, I saw a kid in a, a helmet and knee pads and I was like, wow, that three-year-old's going to learn how to ride a bike. That's amazing. That's young. Wow. Good for that little kid. And the next thing I knew, I saw the kid, the mom put the kid on a merry-go-round. No with way. The, yes. A little merry-go-round in front of a toy store. You know, one the kind you put... Oh my God, that kid will have in. no friends. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And if you don't let your kid have the little bumps, how are they ever going to tolerate the big bumps? You yeah. know, our job is to work ourselves out of a job. You know, you don't want that kid who's failure to launch, who's coming back and sleeping in your basement and because they haven't been given an opportunity to, to work it through. Yeah. You've done um, a lot of work with perfectionism as well, correct? Yes. It's funny, you know. I wrote a paper years ago, went to, uh, to Oxford. It was presented in Oxford. And every time I read a parenting book, I'm laughing that they still have that bibliography in the back on that paper. I'm thinking, that paper's old by now. <laughs> that paper is old by now. But it was you know, a lot of about, you know, how you can really teach perfectionism or not. And, you know, how it's linked to eating disorders. And I think when we hover so much, we create a generation of kids who feel like they can't fail and they can't make mistakes. And you think of Michael Jordan, who was cut from his, you know, high school basketball team and went on to say, I'll get you the next time and, you know, became Michael Jordan. And I think failure is so instructive but we don't want our kids to fail. I mean, this is the years to let them flop on their face. I mean, 
a bad grade in elementary school means nothing except an opportunity to learn something. Whereas parents will correct the paper and they'll hover over it and no, you didn't, you didn't do that capital T right. Do it again, and they, I think they're creating so much more anxiety than than they're really thinking through. And they're also what we call in psychiatry infantilizing a child, rendering them an infant, and not giving them. You know, kids have that mantra: "I do it myself. I do it myself." I saw a beautiful intervention by a preschool teacher when I was interviewing for my book, Permission to Parent, I interviewed teachers, coaches, uh, kids who turned out great, and one element, one preschool teacher, a little girl came up, she was about three or four, and she had a purse and like a little art project in her hand, and she was trying to zip up her coat or button up her coat or do something with her coat, and and she was struggling, and I was talking to the preschool teacher, and the preschool teacher was just watching her kind of struggle patiently. And then after, like, you know, a minute, she said, oh, Brookie, do you need a, a suggestion? And she said, no, I'm good. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, she put down the art project and then zipped up her own little coat or buttoned it or whatever it was. And I thought, wow, there it is. Just wait. Allow them to struggle a little. Allow them to. And she was so beaming, you know, when she, she did it herself. But if we're... We're hovering and helicoptering. We, we don't give our kids any opportunity to grow that resiliency muscle or realize that, you know, I have a picture when I give a lecture of, of parents, like the Secret Service chasing their kids down when they're learning how to ride a bike. You know, they won't let go of the bike. <laughs> the parents are holding on for dear life. I was like, at some point, you have to release it <laughs> in I'm, I'm... order for them to ride. <laughs> yeah. But parents are like running around the neighborhood, like looking like they're going to have cardiac arrest. Right. Let go. And so, let go of the damn bike. <laughs> Do you but think nobody... that some of the perfectionism is coming from so you think it's like the hovering and the nitpicking of the parents um yes yes but i know let me tell you i know a lot of perfectionists uh i would say i'm a recovering one and uh and a lot of my friends are as well and what's surprising to me is how we are constantly saying i can do it myself like i feel like that's the motto for a perfectionist it's like i've got to do it myself because it's going to be the best way if i just do it all myself how do you, if you have a child like that? You know, what's interesting, we, so, the perfectionism is a, is a complicated, multifaceted thing. And a, a lot of kids who I interviewed for the perfectionism said they were ashamed. So, like, if they didn't do something wrong, the parents were like, no, that's not right. No, no, no. Like, they quickly jump in with right and wrong words. Like, no, no, that's not the way you, you know, you, 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 use, you hold your crayon. Well, maybe the kid's holding crayon a different way. So that kind of remembering, you know, a right and a wrong and being shamed I was thinking another one of your biggest parenting tools is is language. It's so powerful. When I grow up, people, you know, very common for parents to say, you're naughty, you're bad, you should be ashamed of yourself. Like, what a horrible thing to teach kids to be ashamed of themselves. Shame is super, super toxic. And um, we want to teach our kids to feel really good about themselves. So choosing language is you know super important like i i was at the pier santa monica pier and i saw a little mom screaming at her kid you know you're naughty you're bad you're so bad you've always been naughty and when i get home i'm gonna take away all your toys and my son i think he was like six at the time or seven he got in the car with me on the way home and he looked very kind of pensive and he said mom that that woman didn't love her 
you know, her son. That woman didn't love her son. And I said, oh, no, honey, she, she, she actually did love her son. And he said, love doesn't talk that way. Mm. And I remember thinking, love doesn't talk that way. He's yeah. actually right. Love doesn't say, you're naughty, you're bad, you're wrong. You know, we, we have to, as parents, realize that our biggest tools are how we say it, what tone we use and then what words. So I always say one of our greatest tools is disciplining ourselves before we discipline our child. So if we're totally flipped out that our kid did something wrong or messed up or they're having a tantrum and we want to scream, stop having a tantrum, you know, we're the ones that need a timeout, not, not our kids. So we have to discipline ourselves before we discipline our kids. And so Truly. much so much of that, too, of that language is the language that was passed down to us and the language that you was passed down right. to our parents from their parents. And it's this cyclical thing of this is what how it was said to me. And, so the, and even if you're aware of it, if you don't do the work to get in touch with it, you will find yourself still saying those things. Um, You are so evolved. That is such a spot-on statement. Good parenting crosses generations. Bad parenting crosses generations. And in times of stress, we revert back to the way we were parenting. We were parented, Mm -hmm. right? In times of stress, you're you're low on sleep, you're exhausted, you're frazzled, you're going to say, shame on you. Well, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Or whatever... The way you were parented, when we're stressed, we regress in a profound way. And it does take a ton of conscious effort to build our muscles as parents to choose different words. You know, that amazing father on the bench who said, that little girl's a bitch, you know. And years later when I went to write this parenting book, you know, I said to him, I'm writing a parenting book, permission to parent, can I interview you? You're my number one guy I want to interview. I said, you have three children. They're all three girls. They're so lovely. You're so calm. And he said, you know, I really had to build that muscle. He said, you know, at first, when I, my first child, I thought I'm going to give her a timeout. And then I realized she doesn't need the timeout. I need the timeout. And he said, when I know I'm going to have a delivery I'm not proud of, or I know I'm going to start name calling or saying things like you're lazy or don't be so selfish or any of those kind of toxic words, he's like, I go upstairs I go check my email, I get on my bed and I breathe, I take a time out, a moment, a minute, and then I can go back and parent from a very different place. So an example is (laughs) a friend of mine has a teenage kid, a middle school kid, and uh, called me up just ballistic. I need to hike with you. I need free therapy right now. So I took her on a hike and she said, I'm just enraged at my son. I found out he stole my calculator and lied about it and so I said to her you know what would you say to your son if you know when he comes home from school how dare you all all the things I do for you you're so selfish and now you're a liar and like the toxic stuff that was she was just enraged and she said what's your advice I said don't speak Mm -hmm. she said what do you mean I said he's still gonna have stolen the calculator tomorrow or the next day or the next day just let's see if he fesses up Sure enough, a week goes by, he doesn't fess up. But she's so much calmer that she's able to go in there and say, hey, can we talk about something versus, you lazy, selfish, lying, conniving, how dare you? You know, all of that, it needed a rest. And sometimes we don't realize we can circle back 
and teach the lesson. The lesson's still there a week later, two weeks later, a month later. When we get in trouble is when we think we have to the parent in the moment. That's yeah. like responding to an email immediately. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, it's a great analogy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When you're charged up about something, if you give it a day, it, it doesn't have as much charge. No, and I promise when you read the email again, or at least this happens for me, when I read the email again, like it's a totally different voice then. Like suddenly like the voice is you're much like, nicer. Oh, like, oh, they didn't mean that exclamation point was actually <laughs> yeah, enthusiasm. Exactly. <laughs> they weren't yelling at me. Dr. Vermin, we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to speak with us. And uh, for publishing a tool that will help so many parents break the cycle. Thank yeah. you so much. Love talking with you guys. Our wise, conscious parents. Really, really impressed. Very conscious. That's that's the keys to the kingdom. Just thinking through how you want to do it and then tweaking it as you go. Oh. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it was our we pleasure. Really Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We love her. She was spectacular. I know. And just so, I mean, it's, that's what's so great about doing the show is that we get to I talk know. to all these awesome people. And and she wanted to meet in person, and but she was going on a trip, and I didn't want to, like, lose out on the opportunity. And I was like, we got to just do it. Well, My we'll husband do. always says, bird in hand. <laughs> so it's like, let's get on the phone. Make well, it happen. Well, and maybe we'll get her back, and we can meet I her in person. Meet her um, but today is the five year anniversary of my dad passing and it's crazy because I can't even believe it's it's five years already I mean in some ways it feels like it's been longer than that in some ways it feels like it was just yesterday that I said goodbye and and I just want to say like it's really hard as a parent because he didn't get to meet Magnolia and I just think like even though I know there was probably I mean in my hippy dippy way I definitely believe that there was a connection there whether it's their energy was mingling before she arrived here I mean there's certainly things that she does that are are reminiscent of him but I would give anything to have seen them together you know I just he didn't even get to meet my husband and that kills me too because they are I mean they are so of the same mold and just renaissance men and you know and funny and and smart and political and crotchety old men <laughs> so i just miss him and it's hard it's hard to to do that to be a parent and to not have your parent be able to be here to to bear witness to to you being a parent yourself and so in celebration of my dad my mom bomb today is a little long but it's beautiful and my dad sent it to me when I first moved to LA and I was totally freaking out because I was like, what am I doing? This is so nuts, this whole trying to become an actress. And he was always so supportive and he was always so open. And he sent me this beautiful poem that's called The Invitation by Araya Mountain Dreamer. And it's probably too long to like put up as our mom bomb. So when we do mom bomb on our Instagram and Facebook, you guys will just give the link to it. But this is the poem. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you've been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. 
I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul, if you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. So <laughs> that was from my papa and he didn't write it, but he sent it along. And I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. And it just reminds me of what we're trying to do here. And that's to celebrate everyone and the choices they make. And, um, and to just let you be you and me be me. Trust in your goodness. Live out your greatness and rock, rock on. on. Atomic, Atomic moms. moms. <laughs> if you like listening to comedy try watching it on the internet the folks behind the sideshow network have launched a new youtube channel called wait for it it's got interviews with comedians like reggie watts todd glass liza schleichinger slicing driving friends with her for 10 years one of the funniest people out there and i still have a hard time with the last name liza our very own owen benjamin that's me takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more you don't have to wait any longer just go to youtube.com slash wait for it comedy there's no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and i love you A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.